today's scripture is from Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing that comes from heaven. God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in God's presence before the creation of the world. God destined us to be his adopted children through Jesus Christ because of his love. This was according to his good will and plan and to the honor and to honor his glorious grace that he has given us freely through the son whom he loves. We have been re- we have been redeemed through his bl- through the son's blood and we have forgiveness for our failures based on his overflowing grace which he poured out over us with wisdom and understanding. God revealed his hidden design to us which is according to his good will and the plan that he intended to accomplish through his son. This is what God planned for the climax of all times to bring all things together in Christ, the things in heaven, along with the things on earth. We have also received an inheritance in Christ. We were destined by by the plan of God, who accomplishes everything according to his design. We are called to be an honor to God's glory because we were the first to hope in Christ. You have heard the word of truth in Christ, which is the good news of your salvation. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit because you believed in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the down payment on our inheritance, which is applied to our redemption as God's own people, resulting in the honor of God's glory. Amen. Thank you, Jordan. Well, welcome again. So good to be with you. Let me just gather up all my goodies here. uh, Normally, I preach from a 104-year-old iPad, and I forgot to charge it. And so uh, you're going to see my white girl laptop here. (laughs) I've tried to avoid you seeing it, but there's no hiding it. It is rose gold. (laughs) We are, uh, during this Lenten season, preparing for Easter to celebrate the resurrection and to help us do that and to orient us in that way, to enter into the story of Easter, we have been wrestling with and exploring the crucifixion of Jesus, asking why did Jesus die and why is it good news? So it's a simple question, and yet um, the series has been so good because I think it is forcing us to explore how the Bible talks about atonement. That's the word that we use to describe the death of Jesus, atonement, at one minute. Now, to help us do that, what we have been doing is looking at big stories, images, ideas, or words that the writers of Scripture use to help us understand atonement. So, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the story of atonement and how to understand this biblical notion of Christ dying for us and freeing us and rescuing us, we have to know that there is a story it comes from, a context, a history, a life cycle that has been playing out from the beginning of the pages of the Bible all the way to the ends of the Bible. And when we remove atonement from that context, we lose some of the significance and some of the depth and some of the majesty of it, and we miss where it comes from. Then last week, we started looking at biblical images or descriptions of atonement. And what we had tackled last week was Christ as our representation. We believe that on the cross, 
Christ dies as our representative. So we were like, what does it mean that Christ is a representative? We use language like substitute or scapegoat or intercessor or mediator. What does it mean that Christ dies in our place or on our behalf in that sense? And the thing that we named as the big idea is that Christ identifies with us so that we can identify with him. Christ identifies with us all the way down to the point of death and suffering, the effects of our sin in the world, so that we can identify with him all the way up to the points of life and resurrection and inheritance. Today, we're moving on, continuing in that same theme, though, of looking at images and descriptions of atonement. And today, we're going to look at the idea of redemption. Redemption is a big, beautiful biblical word with lots of history, lots of stories. And in some ways, you could say that everything God is doing throughout the Bible and in the world qualifies as redemption. But in this text that Jordan read for us this morning, Ephesians chapter 1, redemption is applied directly to the work of the cross. Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 7, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So something about the cross, something about the death of Jesus is redeeming us, securing redemption, accomplishing the purpose of redemption. So the question is, what does redemption mean? What does it look like for the cross to accomplish redemption? What is God accomplishing in this? And why is this word or this idea so important? Sometimes when I'm prepping a sermon, I like to look up Uh, just like in a a normal English dictionary, what a word means. And so I looked up what redemption means in the Oxford Dictionary. I actually really like it. It's a pretty solid definition. Sometimes you're like, what? But this is great. It's two definitions. The first one is the action of saving or being saved from sin, error, or evil. Now, it's a good definition, but if the question you're asking is, what does redemption mean and how does it work? It doesn't help you there. You're like, yeah, I know I'm being saved, but how? In what way? And what does that mean? And the second definition actually gets very close to how the Bible understands redemption. It is the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing of a debt. This is how we use redemption when we talk about like redeeming a code or redeeming a coupon. You exchange it for something else. Or maybe your car has been impounded and you have to go redeem it by paying the fine and getting your car back. In kind of the same way, redemption speaks to regaining something that has been lost. Restoring something that has been lost. Now that begins to get us into what redemption is, but The Bible is a story. And so when the New Testament writers use the word redemption, they have that definition in mind, but they also have a history and a story and a context of redemption in mind. God has redeemed before. And so when Paul says in Ephesians 1 that Christ's blood redeems us, there's something in his mind that informs his definition, that nuances it and expands it. And so what I want to do is look at three Old Testament examples of redemption that become helpful in understanding what Jesus is doing in the New Testament. These are three examples that will show up again and again throughout the biblical narrative that the prophets will use, that the New Testament writers will use and apply to the work of Jesus. And here's the first one. The first one is the Exodus. 
like my spooky, my spooky slide. <laughs> I just wanted you to really remember Exodus. So the first story comes from the Exodus. If you remember this story, and maybe you uh, saw the Prince of Egypt, you kind of get the big gist of it. For some 400 years, Israel lives enslaved to Egypt. And they plead out on their behalf, and God hears their cries. God rescues them from Egypt, delivers them into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 15, 15, God describes that action this way, saying, Remember, Israel, you were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you these commands. Exodus becomes one of the primary images for redemption all throughout the Bible because it speaks to freedom from bondage. Freedom from enslavement. Freedom from a life in Egypt. And it becomes this like mega theme that runs throughout the prophetic writing to describe what Israel hopes God will do again and again. When Israel is in exile in a foreign land, they use Exodus imagery to say, God, redeem us, rescue us from bondage, rescue us from enslavement, rescue us and liberate us and deliver us. What the Exodus shows us about redemption is that redemption is Freedom from and freedom to. God rescues Israel from Egypt and delivers them into the promised land. Redemption all throughout Scripture has those features. It is deliverance, liberation, freedom from, and freedom to. And the New Testament writers will then pick this theme up and use this language. Paul in Colossians 1 will say that you have been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. So you have been freed from something into something. You have been rescued from sin into eternal life. You have been redeemed, freedom from, for freedom. And my favorite example comes in Galatians 5.1 where the apostle Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. This is such a good definition of redemption. For freedom, you have been freed. So redemption in Exodus imagery, it is about being rescued from something and delivered unto something. The next image of redemption in the Old Testament is jubilee. Just in case you forget, Jubilee. Once Israel is rescued and they're in uh, this relationship with God, they're being led to the promised land, God gives them Torah. We often call it law, but it's maybe better defined as teachings. And these teachings are about how do you do life together as a community centered around God and now outside of Egypt, like where we've been rescued, we've been freed. How do we do life together in this way? How do we worship? How do we do community? How do we practice agriculture? How do we go to war if we have to? Torah has instructions for all of it. And into Torah, or the law, is built a rhythm of redemption, a way of caring for the people of Israel, protecting them and safeguarding them from often the deadly and damaging effects of sin that rear up in us. And in Leviticus 25, everybody's favorite chapter of the Bible, 
we get this very beautiful moment where God institutes into the life of Israel a cycle of redemption that would lead to freedom and restoration called Jubilee. And here is the passage that comes from. I just want you to listen to the language because you can hear it resonating all throughout the New Testament. How Jesus talks about forgiveness, how they talk about healing, how Jesus defines his own work is deeply Jubilee. This is what the text says. Count off seven Sabbath years. Seven times seven years. So that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, so the thing we're talking about, the day of that one meant, sound the trumpet throughout your land, it shall be a jubilee for you. And here's the part I want you to pay attention to. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The jubilee was a year in which all debts were forgiven. All land that had been lost by you, by your ancestors, was returned to its rightful family. It is an amazing, it's unreal to even think about. It's so unreal, Israel never practices it. That's true. It's this gift that they're given and they never do it. They're like, I have to give this back? I don't think so. All debts forgiven, all slaves freed. If you had lost your generational land or your grandfather had lost your generational land, in the ancient world, that cost is so huge because it means you're isolated from your family and your tribe. You don't have the ability to care for yourself. Somebody else has now turned it into their livelihood. All of it gets returned. Everybody goes back to even. And the premise roots itself in that the land belongs to God. God portioned out the land to the tribes of Israel and says, I have given this to you and your job is to steward it well, to care for it well, to take care of one another well. But I recognize that sin is still a part of our lives and our hearts and some of you will seize other people's lands and some of you will make decisions that cost you land. And over generations and time, that can lead to systemic and generational issues. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to forgive it. We're going to cancel debts. We're going to restore it all. We're going to jubilee. This language becomes so important for the biblical people. And it is all over Jesus' teachings and his words. And when Jesus begins his ministry, he goes to a synagogue and he asks for a scroll from the prophet Isaiah, who's talking about God's future jubilee. And Jesus takes that scroll, unrolls it, and in Luke 4, he declares this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim gospel, good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom, redemption for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, restoration, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's a fun way of saying jubilee. My ministry, my work, the thing I am here to do is to declare, to announce, and to be jubilee, restoration of that which was lost, freedom to those who have been held in bondage. You lost your inheritance, I'm bringing it back. You think you're too distant from family? Well, I'm making us whole again. This is jubilee kind of work, healing kind of work, restorative kind of work. 
So biblical redemption in this sense is exodus. It's freedom from something and freedom to something. And it is jubilee. It is restoration. It is wholeness. It is healing. The third example, the third uh, biblical story or biblical imagery of redemption is what we're calling and what the Bible calls kinsmen redeemers. This is a final example of the kind of provisions around redemption that I want to show you. 50 years is a long time to wait for the restoration of your lost inheritance. If your grandfather lost your plot of land and you're living outside of your tribe and your clan, unable to provide for yourself, 50 years is a long time to wait. And so the law, Torah, has other provisions to help people uh, who have fallen on difficult times. And one of those provisions is this idea of kinsmen redeemers. If you've read the story of Ruth in the Old Testament, this is what's happening in that book. And a kinsman redeemer has this unique role as a relative or a member of your extended family network. They could act as a representative on your behalf in order to purchase whatever had been lost and return it to you. So a kinsman redeemer could be like an extended uncle or a distant cousin or even someone's family that you had married into, an in-law distant on the side, and say that you had made decisions that lost you your property, somebody else had gained the property, your kinsman redeemer at any moment could buy that property back, restore it to you, bring you back into the clan, bring you back into the family, make you whole again. At cost to themselves, they could restore you. And the the expectation was not that you would repay them. This was at cost to themselves. It was a big burden to take on, to be like, I'm going to pay this debt for you. I don't have any expectation that you're going to pay it back. Because no, 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 once it's happened, you're restored. There's no debt hanging over you. I'm taking the debt and paying your way to make you whole. Now, it's not hard to see how that imagery gets picked up into the person of Jesus. Jesus becomes our representative, as we talked about last week. The one who is close to us, identifies with us, and on our behalf can restore us to what was lost. And we see it even in this passage from Ephesians 1, that Jesus has redeemed us by paying the cost with his life. And so here's the big idea that we have from these three different stories. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, one who is like us, who identifies with us, who is able to secure our freedom and our restoration. That is biblical redemption. It's rescuing us from the bondage and delivering us into freedom, restoring to us lost inheritance as image bearer, giving back to us our purpose and our wholeness. Now that leads, though, to a very important and very tricky question. If Jesus pays for our redemption, who is he paying? If Jesus pays for our redemption, 
Who is he paying? Now, depending on the tradition that you grew up in, you might think that is a very easy-to-answer question. But Scripture is actually not that clear on who is being paid. In Mark 10, verse 15, Jesus describes himself as a ransom. He says, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. But he doesn't answer who the ransom is being paid to. And so there's been two different strains of thinking that have developed post the writing of Scripture by human theologians to try to answer this question. These are what we call theories of atonement. And there are different ways to work out the mechanism of atonement, so to say. Who is being paid and how is that payment freeing us? And in the earliest theories, scholars believed or theologians argued that God was paying Satan for our freedom. That the ransom was being paid to a devil or the devil or to Satan to release us from captivity. Supposedly, this figure holds us kidnapped. And there's actually a decent amount of scriptures to make this argument pretty compelling. Colossians 1, we have been rescued from the domain of darkness, who would be the ruler of the domain of darkness, probably the Satan. And we have been delivered into the kingdom of his beloved son. So there's language and imagery that shows up in scripture that makes sense of that. And so the idea in this theory is that God offers his son as a ransom in exchange for us. You get my son, I get my people. Now this view maybe doesn't get as much uh, mainstream attention today, but a very famous proponent of this belief was C.S. Lewis. Um, And this is a really good excuse to show you my very favorite meme of all time. Um, C.S. Lewis saying, Lion Jesus go roar. (laughs) <laughs> There's no reason to tell you this except that I really like this meme. If you've read, though, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this very famous moment in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Aslan, Jesus' lion, exchanges his life as a ransom for Edmund. Who has Edmund in captivity? Well, the white witch. So Aslan exchanges his life in ransom for Edmund, is sentenced to death on the table, but the joke is on the white witch because you can't kill Jesus' lion because he resurrects, leaving the devil and the white witch holding an empty bag. Not today, Satan. That's this view of the theory. And it is compelling, and you can see where the arguments from Scripture are. And I bring it up because it dominated the early understanding of redemption, that God pays Satan back. But the big criticism of this view, and I think you can also see where it comes from, the big criticism of this view is just a big question, which is why does God, the infinite creator of the universe, have to negotiate with a devil? If America doesn't negotiate with terrorists, why does God have to negotiate with a devil? Like it just, can't he just unmake the devil? Can't he just un make us kidnap and rescue us into himself? Like, why is there some kind of negotiating happening? Why is there a contending with a lesser spiritual force happening? Why is that necessary? And the issue becomes, if God has to negotiate, well, what have we done to God's power? In fact, it seems like we've actually put something maybe over God or on equal footing with God, lessening who God is, playing an idolatry game, or even making something else God. God has to negotiate. God has to do anything, in fact, 
You've actually made something else God. So this view begins to fall out of fashion. And in response, another view emerges. And I think it's the one that probably most of us hold in this room, depending on the tradition that you grew up in, which is, it is not the devil who holds our debt. It's God who holds our debt. God, as the ultimate being, the one who created all things, the one who infuses all things with life, is ultimately the one that we have sinned against. And so it is him, not some lesser being, who holds our debt. This is probably the most prominent view in this room. If you were to think about it, if you were to trace back through your tradition, it's the view that I hold. But I want to talk about it for a moment because this is a view that, though I think is true, can get unbiblical real fast. Here's what I mean. Sometimes, in saying that God is ultimately the person who holds the dead, we make God look like Egypt from the Exodus story. And all of a sudden, God is a tyrant that we have to be freed from. But we are never freed from God. God is never the Egypt who enslaves his people in sin or death or darkness. If exodus or jubilee or kinsman language means anything to us, it is that we are freed from evil, freed from sin, freed from Egypt, freed from the forces of darkness to God. And that distinction is really important. We are never freed from God. We are freed to God. God is the one doing the freeing. That doesn't mean that God does not judge sin. God judges sin like God judges Egypt to stop it and to free us, not to enslave us in sin more. So God is not the one we are being freed from. Jesus does not have to rescue us from God. Jesus is God rescuing us unto himself. But we do sin against God. Sin God is the ultimate being in the universe. And I think this is where the language of Jubilee becomes so helpful. God is the creator and owner of all things. And as image bearers, we are created with a purpose. To live in right relationship with God, self, others, and the world, and to steward and participate in what God is doing. We talked about this a couple of times throughout the series. Sin is the distortion of God's goodness and our purpose. So God gave us the world and we poorly stewarded it. That's why so many of Jesus' parables are about talents, money, or sons who waste their father's inheritance. We, like the son from the story of the prodigal son, take our inheritance from our father and we spend it on wild living. So ultimately, God does hold the debt. It was his wealth we spent, his money, his inheritance, his land. But that leads again back to our first question. Does that mean Jesus has to pay God back on our behalf? We need to be really attentive in this moment. Because I think what can happen as we have this conversation is that we make God like Egypt 
And then we envision Jesus as somehow separate from God, having to pay God back or convince God to rescue us or convince God to look pleasantly upon us. The father is a tyrant who's like holding our debt, demanding repayment, and the son becomes the gracious, loving, forgiving figure who comes to be our ransom, offers himself on behalf of us to God, and somehow in killing his own son, God gets saved and now likes us. I feel like that's sometimes how this story goes. But it is not true. The father and the son are not divided in their purpose. That would be to divide the Trinity against itself. In week one, we said that God is just like Jesus. The work of redemption is the work of a triune God moving together. God does not have to pay God's self back. That's not what Scripture says. Here is the way that Scripture defines it. This is Paul writing in Colossians 2. When you were dead, Because of the things that you had done wrong and because your body wasn't circumcised, God made you alive with Christ, forgave all things that you had done wrong. This language is really important. He destroyed the record of debt that we owed. With its requirements that worked against us, he what? He canceled it by nailing it to the cross. The language here is not that God pays God back. The language is that Jesus destroys any record of debt to begin with, that he cancels it all together by nailing it to the cross. This is jubilee language. God cancels debt. God forgives sin. God absorbs the loss into himself, vanquishes it all together, not holding debt over us or forcing it to be required. God owns all things. He cancels the debt to begin with. I was talking to a friend uh, recently in their car, their, their minivan was in the shop and uh, a friend of theirs let them borrow a new, like their car. A friend's car is in the shop. A friend is like, hey, you can borrow my car. Totally fine. Drive it around. Easy. And then like the worst thing ever happened. My friend totaled <laughs> you can just hear that. It's like the worst nightmare story. Driving your friend's car, you get in an accident, totals it. Full damage. They tow the car back to their house, like just, I don't know. I just, in my, in my mind, I'd be like, I'm going to disappear forever now. That's what's, I'm not going to call anybody. I'm going to just disappear. Delete all my social media accounts. I never existed in the first place. But this person has much courage. So they get the car home. They call their friend on the phone tell them the news. They're like, hey, you did this such kind grace to me and I totaled your car. And the most amazing part about this story is the person whose car it was responds to my friend being like, I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it. Like your life is rough right now. I just want to know that you're okay. Are you healthy? Are you whole? Are you okay? I will pay the damages. Our insurance will cover it. Don't you worry about a thing. I will pay for the car. And my friend was like, I don't know what to do. 
<laughs> this makes me feel so uncomfortable. You have taken all the power, all the control that I thought I had over this situation. You have canceled any debt according to me. You have absorbed any loss. And now you have left me just with the question of whether I trust you and surrender and let that happen. That's biblical redemption. We took the keys ran it right into a tree. (laughs) Just immediately. And God rushes to us, and the first question out of God's mouth is, are you okay? And everything in us wants to be like, ah, the car, I broke it, I'll pay for it. And God's like, I don't care about the car. I own all cars. I can make a new car with my mind. You think I care about that? I care about you. I'll absorb the lost. I'll pay the debt. Yes, I liked this car. It hurts to lose, for sure. But I care about you more. So I cancel the debt. I nail it to the tree. There is no record of wrongdoing. It is forgiven. Jubilee. You are restored. That is biblical redemption, Mythio. God cancels the debt. He destroys the record of wrong. I think sometimes the way we talk about the cross just misses this. And I think we are so obsessed with the ledger We're so obsessed with the debt. Like my friend in this story, immediately the thing we're thinking about is like my own culpability. And of course we are. That's what the cross reveals. We talked about this last week, our culpability. So it's hard not to think about it. But we want the debt to matter. And so we keep talking about the debt and we keep talking about what we owe and we've missed that God's like, you don't owe a thing. I've paid it. I was talking to your friend person who goes to church here not that long ago. And the person had been a Christian for a while. He's a thoughtful, studious, devoted follower of Jesus. We were having a conversation that was just heartbreaking because as we were talking about their spirituality, their life, their following Jesus, they got to this place where they were like, I don't think God can love me. He's like, I know God forgives me, but he has to, right? Like that, that was the thing he said. He's like, God has to forgive me. Jesus has done the thing. He's righted the wrongs. He's paid God back. So God can't not forgive me. I just don't think God likes me very much. As he was telling me this story, he was like, I, I don't even know, like reading my Bible feels like a painful reminder the, of rejection. Prayer feels difficult because well, I don't, I don't want to be rejected by a God that I want so much to love me. And I think this dynamic happens often in our theology of the cross. We fall into this strange and deeply unbiblical trap of believing that Jesus has somehow saved us separately of the Father, or somehow Jesus has rescued us, but yeah, God doesn't really like us because God is more just or more holy than he is loving, and so like our sin is still really present before us. We talk about the cross in a way that like somehow God's nature is incompatible with love. 
or that he desires something more than our restoration. But when we do that, Messiah, we make something other than God, God. And we have missed the whole story. God pays whatever debt, absorbs whatever loss, cancels whatever ledger, because his concern is his people. He desires reunion and restoration and redemption. He is like the father in the story of the prodigal son. That's why Jesus told us that story. He's like, this is the gospel, everybody. He rushes to his son in the field, puts a robe on him and a ring on his finger, restores to him his inheritance, restores to him his sonship, canceling whatever debt or loss. Even in that story, as the younger son tries to bring up his litany of mistakes, the father shushes him and says, you are my son. I think the thing that we miss the most about redemption when we talk about the cross is that God wants it too. In the heart of the parable of the prodigal son, they throw a party. And it's the younger son's party who's returned, but it's also the father's party. This is the thing that he's been longing for. The thing that he has been waiting for is the return of his son. It's why he's been on the road looking out for his child. He longs for the redemption of those who have been lost. This is how Paul ends the passage in Ephesians 1 verse 14. He says, the redemption of those who are God's possession. God, too, has lost something, us, and God wants it back. He wants his children at the table. He wants his family whole and healed. He wants those children that have wandered off to know they still belong to him. God desires our return, and in our return, he celebrates with us. God does not redeem you because he has to or because Jesus convinced him to. No, he redeems you because he loves you. Because he wants you at the table. He wants his family made whole. Because he wants to. Monsieur, that's what we celebrate as we gather at this table every single week. That God wants you there. I don't know what other story you've heard. I don't know what other tradition you've come from. I don't know what other gospel has been written over you. But we said week one of this series, on the cross, we see a snapshot of God's nature. It is a God who absorbs all loss, all wasted inheritance, all debts, canceling the ledger altogether so that you and me and everyone else could belong in him because he wants to. So, Missio, as you come to the table today, would you know you come to a place where God wants to meet you? Where God celebrates with you your return? Where God experiences redemption too? Let's pray.
God, we hear this good news today. Would we see in the cross your work to make us at one with you? It's not a deviation of your nature. It is the perfect expression of who you have always been, a God who moves towards us, a God who cancels debt, who destroys the ledger in order to make us whole and restored. And so God, would we receive that today? Would we know that you want us at the table? That your love is expressed on the cross for us? God, would it redefine our prayer, our practice, our love together, our life together, our worship? Would it be all about encountering the God who celebrates with us because he longs for our return too? God, help us to hear it, help us to know it, help us to live it. In your name we pray. Amen.